The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots. I'm James Heal and I'm joined today by Katie Balls and Fraser Nelson. Now, Katie, the Labour divisions over Israel and Gaza rumbles on. Tell us what's happened today. So as this podcast has documented on a daily basis, Keir Starmer has been under pressure over his position on Israel-Palestine. Initially, it began with that LBC interview in which he suggested, um, or at least you could read from his comments, the suggestion that Israel is within its rights to cut off water and electricity to Gaza, since clarified, has been trying to almost sweep things up and move on. Now the row has moved on to something else, which is less about what did Keir Starmer say in that interview as to what should the position be going forward and you have I think around a quarter of the Labour parliamentary party have called for a ceasefire Uh, you've had councillors calling for and of course you've had some councillors quitting over the party's position today Sadiq Khan has become the most senior Labour politician to call for a ceasefire and probably the first from such a senior platform to do so he has then been followed by Anna Sarwa, the Scottish Labour leader. Now, I think that there's been signs, for example, you go earlier this week, Anna Sarwa was went much further than Keir Starmer in ultimately suggesting Israel had breached international law when it came to Gaza. So I think there are signs, not perhaps of tension, but just of the different positions earlier in the week. When it comes to both, I mean, they are not, you know, carrying the collective responsibility that the shadow cabinet would. They are in positions where they are able to have um, stances independent to the Labour leadership in Westminster. For example, you know, Sadiq Khan, Ulez, a policy the, the Labour, a policy the leader's office did not like, but he kept going with on free school meals. Sadiq Khan has also clashed. And similarly with Anna Sawa, they could have nuanced different positions um, than the Westminster party. So this alone is not, you know, sign of huge problem for Keir Starmer. The problem is it reflects a school of thought in the Labour Party, which uh, includes MPs in the party and members of Keir Starmer's front bench and shadow cabinet. So by having Sadiq Khan and Anasawa go out publicly and say we should go for a ceasefire, I think it is putting more pressure probably on other politicians within the Labour Party who hold those views. They will feel more as though they need to say something. And the communities and their constituencies unhappy with the position will say, well, look, you know, this person said this, why can't you follow them? And you saw that, you know, just in the few hours between Sadiq Khan and Anasawa. I think Anasawa's view is how he feels. But quite quickly after Sadiq Khan released his statement, you had all these, you know, um, supporters in Scotland saying, when will Anna Sawa do the same? Now he's done it. And therefore, does it make it harder for Keir Starmer to toe the line he's currently on? Because the Labour position at present is to allow for pauses for humanitarian corridor, which is different than arguing for a ceasefire. The issue with calling for a ceasefire is unless Hamas says it's not going to attack, are you effectively saying to Israel, you should not defend yourself? This actually follows uh, an argument we're now seeing right across Europe. On Wednesday, um, Spain's Prime Minister, Pedro Sanchez, he called for a, a halt and a humanitarian ceasefire. Uh, now, he's a fairly left-wing guy, but this is, of course, is, is a marker, really, of where you are on the spectrum. The more left-wing you are, the more you are likely to call for a halt and a ceasefire. 
And at the same time, Austria's Chancellor Karl Nehammer, he'd been in Israel this very same day, and he was saying that this would only benefit Hamas, who want to regroup. This is stopping the EU as a whole coming to some coherent position, because its member states quite rightly disagree, as you would expect from a grouping of the most diverse countries on God's earth. That's why EU common foreign policy is a rather difficult thing to do, because they will differ. The people of difficult, different political traditions are in power at different times. But if this is a dividing line, do you call for a humanitarian ceasefire, an immediate halt, or do you not? Then it makes sense, and it has always made sense, for devolved administrations to distance themselves from the centre. So whether it's London, whether it's Edinburgh, you want to say, look, look, Scotland, you might not like your Starmer, but vote for me and Asawar because I'm a little bit different. So in a way, these guys are quite often looking for differences to pick with the main party leaders in London. I think Douglas Ross overdid it a little bit when he was Scottish Tory leader and decided to call for Boris Johnson's removal. Then he had to sort of change his mind and say he wanted him to stay. So you can overdo the differentiation. But we can now see this. Do you, cause for, do you call for a ceasefire or not? to be basically which side of divide are you on. It's a strange um, sort of linguistical differentiator, but I can imagine we'll see lots of politicians come down and more pressure on Keir Starmer to follow. I mean, Katie, ask the obvious question. Polls show a majority of the public would back a ceasefire. Why doesn't Keir Starmer just think, throw in the towel now, go along with the ceasefire... Um, what are the risks to him if he chose to do that? Well, I think ceasefire can be a bit like no-fly zone. Mm. Um, when you know, when you look at polls, often people support it, but when actually you explain or go into the detail and perhaps the nuances, and that's not to say you know every option right now when it comes to Israel-Palestine is quite bad in terms of what could happen. Ceasefire, I think, is something that will poll well, but of course those who argue against it will say, what does that mean? You know, a Hamas going to play along with that? But I think putting aside, I suppose that part of the question, I think that if Keir Starmer now calls for a ceasefire, it will look as though he is doing that because of pressure from his own party. I think that change in his position we had earlier in the week to, uh, you know, a momentary pause, um, which was not so much, even though it was seen as being driven by pressure from his own party, it's more just because the position in America changed. You know, is now he is saying the same as the US government and the UK government. Were he to go outside of that and have a Labour position, which is not where the United States are, I think that's quite a statement from Keir Starmer. He's obviously trying to suggest statesmanlike, um, you know, parties changed and so forth. So I think it would be taken as a sign he's not in control of his own party in the way that has been portrayed. But he now faces a few different questions in the sense there's also um, one of his uh, shadow ministers has signed an early day motion calling for a ceasefire. Now, I was talking to our colleague Isabel Hardman about this and she's saying you know, early day motions are effectively, you know, Parliament's version of a hashtag. They, they don't particularly do very much. Um, but you shouldn't have a situation whereby you have members of your front bench or shadow ministers taking a position which doesn't match. But as things stand, no disciplinary action has been taken. So I think it looks at least as though Keir Starmer does not have a grip on this. And that raises questions about other things, such as particularly because we always talk about this changed Labour Party. You know, what does, I think it, I think what it is doing is raising questions about how this party would actually manage in government with difficult decisions. And, Fraser, also in the news, is going to be the Bletchley Park AI Summit next week. Um, one of those controversies around it has been that China's been invited to it. All the G7 leaders have been. Um, Liz Truss is among the Conservatives who come out and criticised the decision. 
I mean, to what extent could those kind of tensions overshadow this uh, big summit? And should China really be allowed to be invited to the AI? Is it better to accept them as they are or keep them out in the cold, given their record on other human rights issues? Well, I think that we need to remember that the premise of this AI summit is to see whether it's even possible for the handful of countries who've got serious critical mass in AI to get together and agree um, parameters. Mm. Now, what they're hoping to agree here is to basically come up with some system whereby you cannot ask AI to help you build a bomb or something like that. So everybody technically should be united that no matter what direction AI goes, it shouldn't be able to help domestic terrorists. But in a way, it's not so much what they're going to achieve, agree, it's whether they can actually agree anything. Uh, the big question is whether these competing states um, want necessarily to, to agree with each other, whether they want to outcompete with each other, and um, whether... Um, Right now, Sunak actually in his speech yesterday was suggesting that um, the AI could be a Brexit dividend. If the EU is going to be regulating AI too much, then the Britain can sort of go off and, and let, let it compete. So already you can see the language of competition is having a tension with the language of getting everybody in one room. But what is absolutely certain is that any AI pact that doesn't involve China is completely useless because all it takes is one um, major AI power to not go along with this and the whole thing changes the whole thing now of course you can guarantee that china does not want to give these uyghurs any ideas so china is very much on board of course it's it would be ridiculous not to invite china to this you might as well not bother to hold a global ai summit if you're not going to involve one of the global players but if you're trying to teach treat China as an ally in general, that will be controversial. And it still is in the Conservative Party. There's still a big divide as to those who see China as the kind of the main strategic adversary or a strategic challenge. Um, you can see sometimes um, James Cleverly gets his w words mixed up there. But it's it, this is, it remains, and Liz Truss is positioning herself on the hawkish side of this. And remember, she's got a book coming out in April and um, said 10 years to save the West. So she will be getting ready for this kind of Anglo-American book tour thing. And I think, to when, I, when I saw that quote, I thought to myself, um, she'll be having an eye in an American audience for her book and for her politics. And the Americans very much want to hear that China is the big enemy. Um, some aspects of the European um, right agree with her. The British right is broadly split. And finally, Katie, uh, last night was revealed that Kristen Blunt had been arrested on suspicion of rape. Uh, talk us through the story. Yes, yeah, so initially the reports were of a Tory MP. Crispin Blunt has then outed himself and said that he is the MP in question. In a statement, he has um, denied the allegations against him. He said he's been interviewed twice in connection with this incident, the first time three weeks ago, when he initially reported his concern over extortion. So he's suggesting this is something to do with blackmail potentially. He also claims that he is confident this will end without charge. So it's clearly a moving picture. I think what we can say is... I think it just adds to the sense of, you know, just even the optics of the arrest add to a sense of sleaze around some of these MPs. And if you look at that in this kind of drip, drip, drip of by-elections, in some cases because of MPs behaving badly, and then the number of uh, MPs who have lost the whip, it is not a good look for the Tory party. This reminds me of the dying days of John Major's regime, where these scandals just seem to sort of um, gather their own momentum. And it contributes to the overall sense of an exhausted 
Party, which now, of course, you know, you cannot possibly link what's happening to um, Crispin Blunt here uh, to any sort of wider political trend. But it is unfortunate for the Conservatives that they do tend to be um, having to suspend the whip and having by-elections from quite a few of their members now. I think actually, Dean Dory's one was probably the worst. I mean, to be so arrogant as to call an election because you couldn't get into the House of Lords and couldn't bear to serve another year does suggest a sort of just contempt for the very job that is not a great look for conservatives in general thank you fraser thank you katie thank you for listening to coffee our shots